This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2013 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Now streaming only on Hulu. Hey, hey, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. And today, we're bringing you a story from our friends over at Code Switch, NPR's podcast about race and identity. In this episode, my good friend and pod cousin, B.A. Parker, takes us to her hometown, Baltimore, where she meets up with a group of teens going up against Big Coal. They're fighting for their future and fighting for environmental justice. And I don't want to spoil the episode because it's so, so, so good. So I'll stop there. Without further ado, here's my dear friend, Parker. Hey, everyone. I'm B.A. Parker. And I'm here today with NPR climate reporter Rebecca Hersher. Hey, Rebecca. Hey. Now, Rebecca, you live in Baltimore. I grew up in Baltimore County. Right. You're from Baltimore County. I live in Baltimore City. It's a small distinction unless you're from there. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I live here and there's a local story that I've been following and I thought of you because I know you have a lot of love for this place. And it's a story about the trains that carry coal through the county and the city. Growing up in Baltimore, I never considered that I grew up in a coal town. Every once in a while, I'd hear a train sound its horn in the distance, but I didn't pay much attention to it. It was just a train track you crossed to get to the mall. But Rebecca, you opened my eyes to an interesting truth. Yeah, there is a lot of coal moving through Baltimore every day. It comes from West Virginia and Pennsylvania and other coal mining areas. And it's shipped from Baltimore all over the world. And right now, my colleagues on the NPR Climate Desk, they're doing a whole series of stories about climate solutions, you know, about how to get away from our reliance on fossil fuels like coal. And I immediately thought of what's happening here in Baltimore because there is growing opposition among the people who live near these train tracks and the export terminal for coal These things are right in Baltimore neighborhoods. The coal is right in the neighborhoods. That opposition movement, it's led by young people, particularly young people of color who live in those communities. You know, we all come from different backgrounds. We all bring different skills, different knowledge to the team. Y'all done set that bar so high. Y'all gonna get us a resolution. I already know it. So today on the show... Rebecca and I tag along with a group of teenage climate activists who have been fighting back against the polluters in their South Baltimore neighborhood for over a decade. All right, Carlos, lead the way. And who are currently taking on a formidable Goliath. And we ask, what can we learn from these young climate activists? In late August, Rebecca and I visited South Baltimore. It's on a peninsula surrounded by water, highways, and train tracks. The neighborhood looks like the rest of Baltimore. It's mostly residential row houses, small yards, schools, rec centers, parks. Yeah, it basically looks like my neighborhood on the other side of Baltimore. But in South Baltimore, there are tons of 18-wheeler trucks with their diesel exhausts and noise. There's a place where they crush cars. There's an old landfill, chemical manufacturing, and mountains of coal. These are not the kinds of neighbors anyone wants. And that's why, all over the country, they always end up in neighborhoods with poor people and people of color, like South Baltimore. Historically, this place has been a dumping ground for the city. 
Yeah, as evidenced by those mountains of coal directly behind a recreation center with a playground outside. The coal is being brought in by the freight transportation company CSX. Where are we going? So right now we're going to... So these teenagers drove me around, pointing out how close the coal is to their neighborhood. Wait, this giant thing right here is the CSX coal terminal? Yes, that's part of the um, terminal. That's Carlos Sanchez. He's 18 and a member of the group of teenage climate activists in South Baltimore. It's something like, you know, it's really something that you gotta talk about, you know. It's... We just looked at a very long CSX train that's parallel to the street. That is just open air coal just rolling past. Yeah, and you, like, you saw like how it was just sitting there. Yeah, yeah. you're just breathing that in. Right, right. So as we were driving around, I saw a very long CSX train filled to the brim with coal that residents were just walking past. Trains like this are the ones that empty out into the pile behind the rec center. And putting on my climate reporter hat here, there are a couple reasons that having coal in a residential neighborhood like this stuck out to me. One is that coal releases this really fine black dust that's small enough to get into people's lungs. It makes respiratory diseases worse. It can even cause disease and premature death if you're breathing it in day in and day out. So just thousands of people are breathing that in every day. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing that sticks out to me is, you know, coal is a really intense fossil fuel. To avoid catastrophic global warming, humans need to stop burning coal. That's what scientists say. So this neighborhood, these kids, are living on the front lines of climate change and of air pollution. There's the pollution that they're breathing in today and the greenhouse gas emissions that will affect us all tomorrow. Just like seeing coal dust like out in the open like that. It's a lot. Here's 16-year-old Vilma Gutierrez. I didn't know that I was inhaling or like living near this coal pier and I actually want to do something about it. So we are finally. Rebecca, so we're in South Baltimore. Now, as a kid from the county, South Baltimore was a place we were taught to be careful in, a.k.a. avoid. Even recently, there was a mass shooting this past July in the Brooklyn neighborhood of South Baltimore, and another in early September. And the teens we hung out with are trying to make sense of what's happening in their community. Tasia Thompson is 17. I think it's because people think Curtis Bay is a dangerous place. It's not. It's just we're surrounded by dangerous things. Do you feel like you get a bad rap? Yeah, yeah. How so? I mean, we have like a systematic thing where it's like, you know, this place is bad, don't go there. If you go there, you're going to get robbed or you're most likely going to die. Nine times out of ten, it is kind of true. But it's certain parts. You have to avoid certain parts. It's actually kind of the same advice my mom gave me growing up. Tasia's saying both things are true. Yes, her neighborhood is dangerous, and that doesn't mean the neighborhood isn't worthy of investment or, you know, basic human rights. Mm-hmm. That's what the student activists in the neighborhood, including Tasia, are fighting for. You know, clean air, a basic human right, air that doesn't lead to shorter, sicker lives. That movement has been going on for more than 10 years, always led by teenagers, and it started at the local high school called Benjamin Franklin. We visited Ben, as they call it, just a week before the school year started. 
Ms. Albina Joy has been working with the movement since the beginning and says at first it was just a small group. There were only a few kids at the time and they would meet after school and they would talk about things in the community, things that they noticed. Some kids were talking about how they really wanted to be in school more than they could, but they couldn't because of their asthma or because of other health reasons and just being out in it the walk to school was literally too much for them. Ms. Joy says one thing that was revolutionary about the group from the get-go was that it lifted up the everyday experiences of students. Like, you probably remember being in high school, Parker. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, at least, it was pretty top-down. You know, sit there, read this, whatever opinions you have about the world, uh, check those at the door. We're not testing you on that here. But this was a space that the students had created where that stuff was it. And they called their group Free Your Voice. Your opinion does matter here. That's the most important thing. Your observations are the most important thing. And for that reason, Ms. Joy says the movement attracted a wide range of students. Kids who got really good grades, kids who not so much, shy kids, confident kids. We met one of the former confident kids, Shoshanda Campbell, who co-founded the group back in 2011 when she was a freshman in high school. So I think myself... I've always been very vocal. We met outside the rec center in Curtis Bay. The piles of coal were right across the street. We know for a fact that that is coal dust. She told us about how asthma looms over all of her early conversations with the group. When we go into the classrooms, 90% of the hands go up for asthma. That's crazy. That's crazy. We had students sharing pumps. Like, they would share asthma pumps, and that was a normal thing. Walking down the hallway, like, okay, I'm going to my lock and grandma's, eyes, you know? Shoshanda even tells of a friend's brother who died from severe asthma. He didn't come back home. She also saw her own brother suffering at home. My brother, he had really chronic asthma where he would have to go in and out of the hospitals. It was a really bad thing. She said after her friend's brother died, she was hyper aware that asthma could kill people. And she started learning more about how air pollution causes and exacerbates respiratory illness. She started noticing sources of air pollution that weren't hiding, but she also hadn't really noticed them before. We had an open-air coal pile since I was in high school, right? But, like, we all just walked past it because it was, like, the best way to hide something is in plain sight, right? Because you normalize it because you grew up with it. You walk past it. And so we started to actually point those things out. All the industrial stuff around where Shoshana lived contributes to some of the most polluted air in the country, and it's deadly. Yeah, Baltimore's health department did a study about a decade ago that found that the death rate from respiratory disease in South Baltimore is more than twice the rate in Baltimore as a whole. I mean, that number is baffling. Mm-hmm. So respiratory diseases are killing more people in that part of the city than diabetes, than strokes, than drug overdoses. It was very chilling because this was your normal. And like now that's that normal you're starting to see is not normal. And it was around this time that the students learned that their community was about to be home to yet another source of pollution. A company proposed building the country's largest waste incinerator, less than a mile from Shoshanda's high school. Okay, honestly, I don't know how incinerators work, aside from seeing one in like Toy Story 3. Uh, that's legit. I also saw that movie and I didn't learn how waste incinerators work from it. Uh, So basically, it burns trash and makes electricity from the burning. 
and it releases a lot of pollution. So the incinerator itself, it would have released hundreds of pounds of mercury and lead each year, plus soot that can get into people's lungs. Jeez. And on top of that, there would have been pollution from the tailpipes of trucks carrying the waste in to the incinerator, and then trucks carrying the burned ash out. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. So the students heard about all that, and they were like, no, we cannot let this happen. And then it got to this point where we were like, okay, so what are we actually going to do about it? Like, we've talked about it, we see it, our families see it, it's affecting our families. Um, What are we going to do, right? They started organizing the community to oppose the incinerator. They went out door to door, telling their neighbors, this thing is bad, it pollutes the air, it will make us sick. Sashonda says not everyone was on board at first. We were talking to people that's just like, you're a kid. Like, this is not going to change. It's been happening forever. Like, you're naive. And then, like, some other students like, what is naive? I'm like, you don't want to know. <laughs> but, yeah. but they just kept going. It's like that special gear that teens have where they won't take no for an answer. And over the course of years, they got more and more residents to see it the way they saw it, culminating in these big marches from the high school to the proposed incinerator site about a mile away. Same people that told us we were naive. They were like, you're naive, but I'm going to join in, you know? And we were like, just give us a chance. Why do you think they showed up then if they thought you were naive? I think they showed up because part of them knew it wasn't right, you know? Part of them knew that the life that they lived, they didn't want their kids to live that. They didn't want that. The turning point was when the students, with the help of other local activists, got their hands on the contract for the proposed incinerator and learned that the city school system was planning to purchase electricity from the incinerator if it was built. The Gaul. The Gaul, the same school system where they were going to school, planning protests in the cafeteria during lunch. Yeah. So the students took the protest right to the school board. And so you know what we had to do. We had to go down there and address them. If the incinerator takes away a breath, how many do we need until there is nothing that's left? Until the smoke clogs up and we can't fill our chest? And And I think low-key, the school board was so proud of us because they were like, dang, these students are here. There was poetry that was happening. There was, like, people in the group that performed songs. And I'm walking better. We can save the world. You gotta free your voice. From all the boys to the girls. They received a standing ovation from the board. And before long, all of the agencies that had lined up to purchase energy from the project pulled out. The kids won. The company didn't build the incinerator. That company couldn't, they couldn't mess with us. And you know, we've learned a really, really big, big, big message. Because as a kid, you know, people always tell you, get the best job, make the most money, do this, do that. And so it was us against like this company. And so we're like, they have millions of dollars. We have nothing. We're broke. Like I don't even have 50 cents to get a bag of chips right now. So to compare that to this million dollar company is crazy. Um, And so we've learned money wasn't everything, right? Money couldn't buy what we had. We had heart. We had community. And they had the moral high ground, which seemed like it counted for something. In the wake of that win, the movement grew. More kids joined and talked about what they saw in their neighborhood. Today, there's a new generation of Free Your Voice students. They have just as much heart and community. But they've also got a lot to learn about speaking truth to power. I'm, I'm, like, terrified of speaking. Um, I was actually more antisocial, and I was really, like, scared to talk, and I would always, like, stutter a lot. 
I'm not very talky. They have to get over that nervousness pretty quick. Because now that the incinerator fight is over, they're taking on an even bigger foe. Big Coal. That's coming up. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Visit Myrtle Beach. Sun-drenched days, live music every night, and 60 miles of uninterrupted coastline, Myrtle Beach was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Combine that with the aroma of fresh seafood, southern classics, and local low-country cuisine from over 2,000 restaurants. You belong at the beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. This episode's sponsor is PWC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PWC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PWC. This message comes from the weekly show with John Stewart podcast. John and his special guests delve into current events. From the 2024 election to the ups and downs of the economy, there's no telling where the conversation might go. Listen every Thursday on your favorite podcast app. Parker. Rebecca. Code Switch. Now, Rebecca and I have been following a group of teenagers with the Free Your Voice program in South Baltimore. It's a group of youth activists who are working to address climate change and pollution. And they're up against a company that's shipping coal through their neighborhood on trains. For one teen in the group, Taja Thompson, there's an additional problem. Um, I never even thought about trains because I'm deadly terrified of trains. And I scream every time I see them. <laughs> and she grew up next to the train tracks. Oh. We hear the train. Woohoo. Woohoo. <laughs> At least you're not screaming. That's good. No. Process. Tasha first learned about the activism in her neighborhood from her older brother, who was part of the incinerator movement. And after she got involved, she started learning from people who have lived there a long time about how dangerous air pollution is. I know, like, a lady at that church on Church Street, mm-hmm. she came to us to talk about how, like, she's been living here all her life, and nobody in her family lives past 60. And they live, like, a block or two away from the coal terminal. Is it because of, like, respiratory issues? Yeah. It's even affecting her own family. So, living with my grandmother throughout the summer, she has, like, a sign on her door saying, like, no smoking near my house because she has a really bad respiratory problem. And, like, when she breathes, 
she wheezes and then she like whistles. So this past summer, Tasia and three other students spent their time gathering evidence to try and get the coal out of their neighborhood. One way to do that is to prove what they already know, that the black dust that's all over the place is related to the coal that's brought in on trains by the CSX Transportation Company. Here's another student, Raven Veyon. She's 18. It feels like frustrating because we're doing all of this just to prove to them that it exists, you know, that the terminal, like, is harmful to the community surrounding it. Now, truly, everyone already knows this. The residents know it. They see the black dust in their cars, on their porches. Even the head of the Maryland Department of the Environment, Secretary Serena McElwain, knows this is coal dust. But yeah, we are, I just want to clarify, it, we know it's coal dust. We, we, uh, you can't deny that. This was at a community meeting in Curtis Bay in April. Since she took office last year as the state's first black environment secretary, McElwain has visited the neighborhood multiple times. You have to be blind not to see what's going on in this community. We're not blind. And again, no more rhetoric. There's a strange contradiction happening, right? Secretary McElwain, who is the top environmental regulator in the state, acknowledges that what the people in the neighborhood are breathing in is coal. But she also says someone, either the agency itself or someone else, needs to prove it in order to get rid of it. This is from that same neighborhood meeting in April. We have to figure out a way to measure and and to test the dust that you are experiencing here so we can tie it to coal and see where is it actually coming from. Now, I should add, the state regulates the piles of coal at the export terminal. But the federal government, not the state, regulates the train tracks that take the coal to the piles. So when the dust blows from the piles, it's the state's problem. But when it blows from the trains, it's the feds? (laughs) Right. So McElwain's agency, the Maryland Department of the Environment, has asked CSX to do more monitoring of pollution along the perimeter of the coal terminal. When we asked CSX to comment for this story, they declined to make anyone available from the company for an interview. But they did share a statement by email that said the company is monitoring particulate batter, which is another word for tiny soot, around its property, and that CSX will, quote, continue to invest significant resources into this facility to operate it in an environmentally responsible manner for years to come. And we sampled from three... The students are going beyond what CSX is doing to monitor air pollution. They spent the summer gathering samples of dust from all over the neighborhood to try to prove that it's from coal and see which parts of the neighborhood are most affected. Raven is really into science, and she explained it to us. It's pretty complicated. Also, we were standing in a construction site in the rain. Um, Our first major method is tape strips, which we have double-sided tape we put on wood outside of residents' homes. and. So basically, they're using sticky paper to gather black coal dust and prove how far it travels. Like, is it just the people who live right near the coal piles who are exposed to this? What about the people who live along the train tracks? 
It's really labor-intensive work to figure this out. It's kind of perfect for high school students, honestly. And we go back on day 3, 7, 10, and 14 to collect it and see the dust for ourselves. Scientists from Johns Hopkins and Towson Universities are helping the students do this work. And the state regulatory agency, they know about it. They're supporting it. The students and the scientists are also taking samples of dust and sending it to a scientist in California who uses an electron microscope to compare the dust that's in the neighborhood to samples from the piles of coal at the terminal to see if it matches. The goal is to eventually get the state regulators to deny the permit that CSX, the coal transport company, needs to operate, or at least require the company to enclose all the coal, or at the very least, put water onto all of it so there's less dust blowing around. And no matter what, they want CSX to pay the community a lot more for the damage that the pollution is causing. Secretary McElwain says that the state is considering all of those requests right now. Here she is at the April community meeting. So we're no longer just taking the permit and rubber rubber stamping it when it's time for renewal. We're going to say, okay, you need to put more money into the community. Now, it's worth saying this fight that these kids are undertaking against the coal terminal, it is way harder than the fight against the waste incinerator because it's against a bigger, more entrenched opponent. This coal operation has been there more than 100 years. The freight company, CSX, is gigantic. More than 8 million tons of coal moved through South Baltimore in 2021. CSX makes billions of dollars a year. And it's just one part of an even more massive coal industry in the U.S. That industry, it has a lot of political power. It's not going away overnight. So it's just like having the truth does not mean you're going to win. Shashonda Campbell, one of the original Free Your Voice students, says one thing she's learned in the last decade is that having proof that something is wrong doesn't always mean that much when you're up against people or companies like CSX with more power than you. And so for me, that's one of the hardest things I deal with is like maintaining expectations because I'm, I'm still like, they need to go away. You know, that's my firm thought. But I know for a fact that that's not how it's just going to play out. This will be a very long uphill battle for the students. Right now, the state is considering changes to the operating permit that CSX needs to continue exporting coal from Baltimore. But that process is moving very slowly. I don't understand why it takes so long. Right? Yeah. So we interviewed Secretary McElwain and we asked her about this, especially since the governor who appointed her has promised to dramatically reduce greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels in the state of Maryland. Can you help me understand, like, what the timeline is for a facility like this if we zoom out and think about, you know, obviously it's a coal facility. So how do the promises about reducing emissions and protecting the global climate, how do they fit with your strategy for dealing with the more immediate air pollution concerns from this facility? I think the easy way to answer it is we're phasing out coal. Uh, We're moving to renewables. All this is a part of the larger plan. The goal we have is to um, get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2045. All of these things are a part of that larger plan. So eventually this facility will go away, it sounds like. 
Well, as part of the transition, as we are moving toward a clean economy, a clean transition to clean energy, yes, and eventually not this facility, but coal will not be a sole part of the goal of going toward clean energy. So the coal will eventually go away? Mm. She won't comment on the terminal, but 2045 is a long time. I picture myself with a cane. Mm -hmm. These kids will be our age. Yeah. To keep going, you kind of have to channel those teen blinders, you know, just believe like you're a teenager. Of course it's going to work out. Why wouldn't it work out? I don't know. These students need all the help they can get. They need the science. They also need skills that they didn't necessarily arrive with, like public speaking, confidence talking to adults about this stuff. Yeah, Tasia has put a lot of work into that. Were you into public speaking before all this? No, because I'm, I'm like terrified of speaking. But when it's something that I know truly about, mm-hmm. people listen to children a lot more than they listen to older people. Have you found that in your experience? No. Yes. Yes. Talking about the community at the community association meetings. Yeah. They love to hear our input or hear the work that we're doing. Do you feel like there's a lot of pressure? Yeah. No, yeah, it's a lot of pressure. One of the things that helps with the pressure is supportive adults. And to find those adults, the students took their work from the summer, all that info about the coal dust and their arguments against the company, and they made a PowerPoint presentation. We followed them all over town as they went from place to place, building community support with people like Miss Angela Smothers. Hi, honey. Hi. How are you? They were giving their presentation about their coal findings. Team has done citizen science over the summer. Okay. Miss Angela is a lifelong resident of Mount Winans, another part of South Baltimore that is right next to the train tracks. The railroad tracks, they weren't always bad. Because when I was a kid, the um, Ringling Brothers used to stop there. And when they walked the animals, as kids, we would gawk at the giraffes and the elephants. So this is a community that is full of memories, good memories. We watched the students explain their findings to Miss Angela. The dust on there. This is dust. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's awful. Mm. Tasia explained some of the history of industrial pollution in South Baltimore. You know, this all was an accident. Including the complete destruction of a neighborhood called Fairfield to make way for a chemical plant. So this is actually Fairfield. Hmm. I remember Fairfield. I had some friends when I was younger. They moved from Fairfield, but at that time, I was young. I didn't understand, like, the reasoning. Mm-hmm. It was really inspiring to hear Tasia and Ms. Angela talking together about this. Tasia is bringing this knowledge she has from doing research and also the fire that that knowledge has lit in her. And Ms. Angela is bringing her own memories of that place to the table, giving personal context and situating the work that these kids are doing in the longer struggle for clean air here. Along with this house, three other of our neighbor communities also got torn down. Mm. It could
could be such a fraught interaction. Like, if Miss Angela didn't feel comfortable with Tasia presenting herself as an expert, or if Tasia didn't respect Miss Angela's lived experience. Yeah. Yeah, but they're navigating it with so much mutual respect and love that it works. I commend you guys. I really do. Because it's like, you know, it, it breaks my heart. Because it's like they didn't listen to us. So prayerfully, they will listen to you guys. Because we've lost a lot of people from cancer. You know what I mean? In, in these two communities, what is it going to take? So I'm rooting for you guys. Anything you need us to do, we're on board. Because so the students have support from their community. But they're still trying to translate that to support from people in power. Like, here's Carlos Sanchez, one of the students, asking Secretary McElwain a question at that April meeting. He's pressing her on why Curtis Bay has had so much pollution for so long. Will you acknowledge that Curtis Bay and South Baltimore neighborhood has been used as sacrifice zones? So I don't want to reply too much because I want to listen. And again, that's why we're here now, today, to listen. Now, that response was not very satisfying to some community members who we spoke with. They're like, wait, you're the one with the power. We want you to do more than listen. We want you to fix the problem. And we're tired of people like you promising us that you'll do something, and then it feels like nothing changes. McElwain says she's doing everything in her power to reduce coal pollution in the neighborhood. But changing major infrastructure takes time, and she can't answer for the sins of her predecessors in power. Okay, I understand that. But also, right now, Baltimore City is in this unprecedented situation where it's Black leadership across the board. From the city council person for this area, to the mayor, up to Secretary McElwain, all the way to the governor, are all Black. And they all acknowledge that what's happening in South Baltimore is, quote, unjust and unfair, as the mayor of Baltimore, Brandon Scott, put it when we asked him about this. Right. But what does that really get you? Because there's this naive notion that if the people in power look like me and say the things I want to hear, then they'll do what they need to do to protect me. That somehow representation equals power when really it's just another bureaucrat. And that's something Shoshanda is grappling with, too. Her feelings about Black politicians who know the problem, but don't ultimately challenge the status quo. You are pathetic. You are worse than the people that hasn't experienced it. Because they can say, I've never seen that. I don't know what that's like. But you know what it's like. You know what it's like. So we shouldn't have to convince you. We shouldn't. There is this frustration about what feels like nothing being done. But then there are also just real bureaucratic hurdles that not even I understand. Totally. There are systemic reasons that it's really hard to undo environmental injustice. Even if you were elected to do it, even if you want to do it. Like, a lot of laws about air pollution, for example, are written in ways that basically mean people have to prove that they're being poisoned before regulators can crack down. It is kind of amazing that these young people are building a movement in the face of everything. And even if they haven't been able to get rid of this coal pollution, they've racked up some more incremental wins. One, they're making it harder for the rest of the city to ignore what's happening in their community. Two, they're winning over their neighbors, raising awareness about the dangers of the coal dust. And three, 
they're very slowly gaining little bits of political power. Like, they've gotten meetings with the state regulators. Ten years ago, that wasn't happening. Yeah, and even the idea that the coal terminal might need to go away, they're building support for that idea, which is revolutionary in a place where there have been trains carrying coal to port for a century. And they're using new tactics. Free Your Voice's action team is putting their bodies on the line. I mean, everybody's putting their bodies on the line because they have to breathe that air. Mm. But they're risking potentially getting arrested for protesting or putting up banners over the highway. Mm-hmm. One of their recent approaches was placing bags of coal on the front steps of city council members' homes, demanding that they publicly support efforts to reduce air pollution. I asked Shoshanda... What is working about this movement? You know, why is it still going strong 10-plus years in? And she said the constant stream of new kids with new ideas, new tactics, is a big part of it. If we're in the room with the same people, you all are already, like, accustomed to thinking the same. But when you invite those new voices and those new thoughts into it, then you expand it and you make it durable because you're always continuously passing the baton. I am not the holder of this movement. You know what I'm saying? Because if I do that, it's not sustainable. It dies when I die. Just keep passing that baton. Every few years, there's an entirely new batch of high schoolers with their own ideas who aren't tired or jaded. I wish we never had to do it. I don't wish to keep passing the baton. I want the baton to stop. I want somebody to crush and break the baton and stomp it and say, we don't have to pass it no more. My biggest concern on our trip to South Baltimore was that I would infect these teenagers with my grown-up cynicism. Mm -hmm. Because the thing that stuck with me about the students we met was that even though it's messed up that they're in a situation where they feel like they need to fight for clean air, they're grabbing that baton and sprinting with it. They are not deterred by the long odds. Does being in this program feel like a, a step in the direction of you being able to have your voice out there like that? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Because if, if it means, like, getting my voice out and, you know, helping other people get their voices heard, then I think I'm pretty, I'm doing pretty okay with that. That's Raven Veon. I love how earnest she is and how much pride she clearly feels about being a climate activist in her community. She hasn't learned what rhetoric is yet. She just knows that there's a problem and she can be part of the solution. Yeah, and it shouldn't be surprising that young people like Raven are effective leaders of local climate movements. National polls show that the people who are most concerned about climate change are people just like these kids who live in neighborhoods that bear disproportionate pollution from burning and transporting fossil fuels as opposed to middle-class white kids who so often end up being the face of youth environmental movements. So, of course, the young people who live in neighborhoods that are dealing with this pollution, like Curtis Bay, like South Baltimore, those are the people who are demanding to be listened to and are being creative about solutions. The students say that being a part of the program has changed them, how they advocate for their community, and how they advocate for themselves. Vilma and Carlos again. I was never interested in politics. Um, It never really interested me because of the young age that I am. Like, what am I going to do? But it really has, like, changed my mind. It's not as before where I was, like, like, scared or shy. 
I've definitely gotten more confidence in like speaking and being able to connect with other people. Like it's hard to say no to um, youth. So here's where we stand. The kids are still meeting with the Maryland Department of the Environment to share their findings about the coal dust. The state's regulators and attorney general are exploring ways to reduce coal pollution in South Baltimore, says Secretary McElwain. And eventually, regulators will draft a new operating permit for CSX, maybe with some new protections and or money for the people of South Baltimore. But until then, everyone is just breathing that air and the fight will keep going. And that's our show. You can follow us on Instagram at NPR Code Switch. If email is more your thing, ours is codeswitch at npr.org. And subscribe to the podcast on the NPR app or wherever you get your podcasts. And just want to give a quick shout out to our Code Switch Plus listeners. We appreciate you and thank you for being a subscriber. Subscribing to Code Switch Plus means getting to listen to all of our episodes without any sponsor breaks. And it also helps support our show. So if you love our work, please consider signing up at plus.npr.org slash codeswitch. This episode was produced by Courtney Stein. It was edited by Dahlia Mortada, Neela Banerjee, and Bilal Qureshi. Our engineer was Josh Newell. And special thanks to Greg Sautel, Matthew Auberg, Dr. Christopher Heaney, Ariel Redding, Jerry Holmes, Dr. Nicole Fabricant, and Bree Hatch. A big shout out to the rest of the Code Switch Massive, Jess Kung, Christina Kala, Lori Lizaraga, Jean Demby, Leah Danella, Verilyn Williams, and Steve Drummond. And welcome to our new producer, Xavier Lopez. I'm B.A. Parker. Hydrate. And I'm Rebecca Hersher. Go for a walk. You're listening to NPR. Thanks again to our friends at Code Switch. I'll see you on Friday for a new episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.